This week I'm talking to Todd Hamina, a winemaker up here in Oregon, who did a cross-country self-supported bike race uh, with about 200 other people all on their own, and it's pretty wild. Uh, we recorded it inside of his winery, uh, and there's a bunch of noise in the background, but, you know, roll with it. Here we go. Hi, I'm Matt Howie, and welcome to Hobby Horse. Today with us is Todd Hamina. Yep, Todd Hamina. <laughs> and uh, Todd, you run, um, how do you pronounce it? Biggio? Biggio Hamina Cellars. Biggio Hamina uh, Wine Cellars. Uh, and like, I want to talk about like the wine industry. I live near it and I've sort of sucked it up from osmosis. It seems like, it seems like there's levels between, um, you know, you own a winery, you own a field, you own a farm, you own grapes, you have like 40, 50 workers, you bring it in, you have like chemists, and you make the wine, you bottle the wine, you make the labels. Some like big companies do all that. And on the other end of the spectrum, I've heard like about vanity wine, where I could just buy grapes off a guy who had extra, uh, a friend who does bottling could do it for me, and I would just basically be designing the label or something, it seems like. But I know you're closer to the big end. So, like, what all do you guys do? And so, for us, um, I've worked all the different facets of of this business from from starting as a vineyard worker to being GM to being winemaker. Have been cellar worker, been a tractor driver. How many years? This is my twenty third year of production coming up this fall, and twenty six years in the in the wine business. Jeez. But I mean, essentially, you're it's you really only you. You only do three things. I mean, you farm fruit, you make wine, and then you sell it. That's that's the gist of it. Um, somebody's always got to be farming it, and somebody's always going to be making it. Uh, where people fall into, somebody's always got to be selling it. Uh, that kind of comes into what you started off with. There's there's vanity wines, there's mass production, there's like macro wines. Some people are just making a slew of wine and they're throwing it in a can, and that that appeals to you know a, a younger audience. And then you've got some guys that retired from some business that they did really well, and they want to have a couple acres in the ground just to have their wine from their place. Sometimes they make it, sometimes they hire it out you know here i run it as a, a co-op so for biggio hamina we don't own any land anymore we used to own land we sold it and i run this place as a co-op and essentially we have acreage contracts with farmers they farm according to our specifications and then from there i always make it in the contract that i get to control with a pick date so i get to pull the trigger nobody brings me fruit that i've ever said don't bring me because <laughs> I don't have to unload the truck right then they've got to figure out what to do with their grapes so we only have it in situations where we can control all of the raw material coming in and then I have some clients they own vineyards and then I make the wine for them I have some clients that don't own any vineyards don't own any land don't own a winery but they have a label and I make the wine for them and I mean yeah like um are there farms where someone is not farming their own grapes for themselves? All they do is client work, I guess, sort of. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's plenty of wineries that just grow grapes for existing clients and don't have their own brand. Hmm. Um, that's not the best way to do it. Obviously, the best way to be would be to be vertically integrated so that your entity owned the land, made the wine, and you had a sales force. And then you're keeping all of the profit margins from every step. If you're just farming... You're selling your fruit for X amount per ton. 
you know, easy math says you get two tons per acre. So let's say you're selling it for 4000 a ton. You're going to bring in revenue of $8,000 for that acre. You might pay 5500 to 6000 to have that farmed. Mm. Now you've done all this work and labor just to make two grand an acre. It's kind of, it's kind of a silly notion. Um, but there's a lot of people that do it. There's a lot of people that get into this business because they think that wine grape growing is super romantic. Uh, it's farming. <laughs> and it's like shitty soil purposely. I mean... Yeah, like, usually, historically, grapes are planted um, anywhere decent crops don't grow. Because mm-hmm. uh, they do want... I mean, it's kind of cliche to say that they want to suffer, but the, the plant will grow like a weed if left to its own devices in a rich soil. So you need, you know, you need to challenge them a little bit just because that helps you and your farming to, you know, keep them in check. And the hills around here in western Oregon are like heavy clays and you'll get lots of like, and they like to do slopes, so well-drained and then like big cracks in the soil is good because struggling vines have to like seek yeah. out water. Well, it's kind of like you want them, you want them to struggle a little bit, but you also don't want to, burden them down either so there's there's a fine line between making it too easy and making it too hard but there is there is a realm in there where you can get 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 it all done but again it's 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 a it's a plant that requires a lot of handwork um from the pruning to uh debudding to shoot positioning to trellising to fruit thinning to harvest these are all activities that are just by week by week work i thought (laughs) Yeah, I yeah. assume they start growing in the spring. You show up in September, <laughs> and it's like magic. Yeah, no, no, you get. I mean, guys, corn is corn would be corn people like corn's an enviable we crop. Put it, yeah, we put it in the ground <laughs> and then we take it out of the ground six months later. And we don't do a ton. No, with 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 the wine thing, it's more like you've got uh, every plant has its own bonsai activity, <laughs> uh, depending on what part of the season that you're in. Did you get rid of your land because it's just too much? We, we sold our land because uh, we were going to move to the Finger Lakes in New York and do oh, wine. Okay. And that was in 2005. I was winemaker at Patton Valley. And we, I, I put notice into the job. I helped hire my replacement. We sold our farm. And in the midst of all of that, there was a major freeze and some plants. Basically, at negative 17 Fahrenheit, trunks of the grapes will explode. Hmm. And it gets that cold in upstate New York. So there were some problems there. And then there was a spring frost to boot. So even though I had lined up work and I'd flown back for several interviews and things looked... We were just right at the cusp of going. We just regrouped and said, let's stay here. And at that point in time, uh, I took the position as general manager and winemaker at Maysera. Oh, okay. And because I had done kooky farming uh, in terms of biodynamics and uh, and organics... um, I basically I took them through their certification process. Has it been okay to do wine without land in the last few years? Like, do you yeah, wish you had land? You know, every time you turn around, you spend at least a thousand dollars when you when you own land. If you sneeze, you spend a thousand dollars, and then you can add zeros to that, all depending on how it's going. Yeah, sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I don't miss it. Um, if I were to own land again, I certainly wouldn't live on it. Um, and I don't even know if I owned land again that I'd put the winery on it because putting nice wineries on viable uh, agricultural land, even building big buildings on viable agricultural land doesn't make tons of sense. Um, like our model here is just like the old Burgundian model. You have the vineyards up in the hills and then you have the wineries in town near the highway. 
you know, and here we're zoned light industrial, so I can have a commercial kitchen. I can do a lot of different things because I'm not zoned agricultural. Um, and I'm not tying up the land. And more importantly, I'm not having a bunch of tourists coming up my road every single day, making my neighbors mad because they've moved out to the country to get away from things. And now here I am bringing people out to my winery every day. I never thought of that. Um, I've was, seen the trend of uh, yeah, down, would, downtown would. city wine tasting rooms. And I thought, well, that takes the romance out of like going up on a gravel road in the hills to go see a winery. But you're right. It's pretty stupid. <laughs> I mean, you can make more money per acre not yeah, having a building. Yeah, plant, plant more. Plus, it's easier to like wine taste the six places downtown walking versus, right. I mean, it's well, a 20-minute drive between Walk to wineries. Uber. You're right. You're not going to yeah. Uber out in the countryside. Right. So how long have you been doing uh, your own label and your own brand? Oh, 2007 oh, okay. was the, the launch for that. And then we launched that. We, we rented space in an existing winery. We bought fruit. So we avoided every capital cost that we could. We only spent money on rent and grapes and packaging materials and whatever we pay ourselves. Um, and that was it. So I have a very stripped down model. My model still is very stripped down because now you have your building. here I have my building, but the building makes money. So we bought all the nice equipment, but because we run it as a co-op, I've always got at least a handful to half a dozen people, sometimes more, paying me rent every month. Then I sell Vizio Hamina on top of it. Yeah, what's the capacity being used? Is it like 50% your capacity, 50% sold off? Um, now, right now, this last vintage, I'm probably 35 to 40% okay. of production. Sometimes I'm half. I make the majority of the wine. I probably make 85 to 90% of the wine here. Oh, for other people? For other people. Yeah. But oh, what, so some people bring in their own wine person to... Well, one guy, Tim Wilson from Denison Cellars, he's, uh, he's worked in a lot of great places. And he, he has, so he's Denison. He's a renter. I don't do boo to make any of his wines. He's, he knows exactly what he's doing and the style he wants to make. He, he sources fruit just like I do, but he does all of his work and it's under his own so label. So he's like renting one of your tanks and then barrel space. He has to have all his own barrels, his own pump. Um, he has to have all his own stuff. And we basically put him in a corner, <laughs> and uh, and then he just does his thing, and the wines are they're they're beautiful. I and think then how's the sales part work for you? I sell 85 percent into the Atlantic Seaboard. Huh. Wow. Uh, I sell very little wine in Oregon. I sell very little wine online. We get uh, probably ten to fifteen percent of sales is direct to consumer. But realistically, we sell hard into the D.C. market. So Maryland, Virginia, District of Columbia. And there's just sort of like romanticism about Oregon. Florida. You know? Well, no, I mean, think about it. It's D.C. So these people never know what's going on with the economy. It's recession-proof. They've always got money. They go out to eat. They have to wine and dine. Restaurants are jumping. Wine shops are always getting great pull-through. It's a supermarket. Hmm. It's not like New York, D.C. <laughs> it's D.C. It's, it's not, not like New York Every time at all. I'm in New York, there's like Willamette Valley Wines, a huge list. I'm always blown away by like, I live by that one, that one, that one. Right. Like, why is it, what is it here for? Why, how did it get to New York? Yeah. Well, the East Coast, you've got a tremendous population base and, and they're drinkers. And no, no source of Pinot Noir grapes on... Different climate. They yeah. do a lot more Bordeaux varietals. So the Cabs, Merlots, things to that effect. Hmm. Plus, it's a lot more humid, so make, that makes the uh, farming a bit tougher. Total game changer, humidity. 
So uh, enough about winery. Uh, let's talk about uh, bikes. Um, uh, you ride. Uh, you're like a road bike rider. Uh, Definitely, yeah. I'm a road did you get into it with like triathlon and stuff? Because you kind of have a triathlon type time trial bike. I uh, yeah. Well, no, I've actually never done a triathlon. Really? Why yeah. would you have flat bars? And <laughs> because you go faster. Yeah, that's true. You know. I so c- when did you start riding as like an adult or I, something? You did I as bought. A kid? I bought my first adult bike i bought a cannondale in 1984 i was uh i think i was 17 or 18 or maybe i just turned 18 i bought it it's an st500 touring bike triple cranks i could put front and back bags on it i still own that frame that is my commuter bike nice. i ride to this day i think it's got at least forty thousand miles on it um and i did i toured i never raced even though i went to the university of colorado at boulder um, oh wow I never, I never saw the point of starting in one spot and then returning to it. <laughs> you know, oh, you do a road in a circle. <laughs> um, more of a point to point to point to point is is what I always like overnight trips and stuff. Overnight trips, or you know, it's summers off in college. You can you know pick up a. a I would work temp jobs until I had a couple few hundred bucks, and that was enough for me to take off on the bicycle for a week or so and eat eat ramen and and you know live the glamorous life of touring um so i would do that a lot and, and then as an adult like in your as 30s an adult and, and then I, I finished college i looked at a couple grad schools um down in chile and i took a bike down there and rode around and wow. decided not to go to grad school i ended up getting a job uh, teaching in china and i did that for a year and i came back and at that point I still wanted to ride the bike a lot, and I ended up racing my bike and working in a bike shop. Oh, cool! And that was for a couple of years. And this was in in Colorado, and so it was you know good this good is like competition. Nineties ish or eighties ish. This would have been late eighties. Okay. No, this would have been early nineties. Okay. And uh, it's probably all mountain bikes by then. <laughs> they were just coming on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that was good, and I could climb. I wasn't a very big guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 50 pounds more now than I was then. So I still think I can go up the hill like a mountain goat. Now just a goat with an anchor. So, and then since you've been in Oregon, have you been riding the whole time? Um, I started, I probably started riding again in 05 or 06. Um, I kept all my bikes. When I moved to Col- from Colorado to Oregon, I had three bikes and four pair of skis on my old Bobo. So I brought, I brought my toys with me. Um, but I probably didn't didn't start actively riding until about maybe ten or twelve, thirteen years ago. Again, even though I, you know, I've got multiple centuries in my legs, and then I, you know, I just I would buy different frames on eBay and check things out, and then I I've got that I think you that time trial bike you saw was this uh, nice Orbea TT bike and. I ended up putting drop bars on that. And then I got rid of that, and I, right now I've got the Lightspeed Titanium. Cool. And that's that's a nice bike. So, like, we're burying the lead. Um, you're probably, like, recreational rider like I am, 50, 100 miles a week, you know, maybe 200 is normal. That's all we have time for. Like, yeah. you know, a couple Saturdays, uh, whatever, once in the week, maybe. But I ran into you, what, like... May. It was probably... Yeah, geez, it was May run into you and said like oh hey what are you up to you're like i'm training for a big event and then you describe like it's a it's a cross-country 
um, self-supported, you know, what is it called actually? It's called the Trans-America Bike Race. That's right. Trans-America Bike Race. And you're describing it like, oh my God, that's triple a lifetime. Uh, cannot believe it. That sounds great for next year. I mean, it's going to take you about 14 months to get ready. <laughs> But you were, you were like, I'm leaving next month. <clears throat> so how, like, when did you think, I'm going to do this? I th- in December. So December, I got the notion that I'd do it. I trained for almost seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of, it, like, December and January was mainly on a stationary trainer. You know, four, five, six, seven days a week, 60 to 90 minutes at 110 to 120 RPMs. Just dialing in cleat position and saddle position basically getting that lower body just dialed in i had very there's a lot of saddle sore stories going on at the trans am but uh, i had one hot spot and that's really my fault because i just didn't didn't butter up enough into a hot hot afternoon and i was like oh i'm getting a hot spot and once you're getting a hot spot you've got a hot spot it's too late yeah and uh so i mean did you go see a fitter or anything no, I did fit a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest problem that I ended up running into was I was really uh, concerned about getting Shermer's neck because I usually ride a fairly low, long stem. And so I moved my position up. I put on a shorter stem, raised it up, and it was articulated so I could, I could bring it up. So essentially, I closed up my cockpit position to keep my head comfortable. And, you know, no shoulder pain injuries, no neck problems but what I ultimately ended up doing was doing this uh, pectoralis minor entrapment so the reason I dropped out of the race is because I, I lost feeling and dexterity and then strength in my hands and what had happened was getting myself into that upright position um, after you know what seven eight days of doing anywhere between 110 and 180 miles a day I uh you tighten up so much climbing and just and descending really is the the biggest culprit is because now you, your weight's forward and you're supporting yourself. Um, yeah, I just lost feeling, but that's not something I could have replicated without going out and, and doing the same thing. So yeah, I mean, do you think the old position would have helped out? I think the old position would have been the one to do. But you might have. But I may have. Neck. So I'm gonna. Yeah. Sometimes soon probably as, <laughs> disc brakes like for better descending. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still not. I mean, disc brakes are great, but that would involve buying lots of new things. And I've already got enough stuff. I can build two or three bikes up at a time with the amount of yeah components that I that I have laying around. And and I still do all my own wrenching because I used to work at Morgul Bismarck in Boulder, which is uh, David Spinney and Ron Kiefel's shop, and they're oh, original Seven Eleven guys. And yeah, I was, right, right. I was their head mechanic. Way back in the day. So wait, so let me see, for about six months you were, um, well, after the trainer stuff. After the trainer stuff, and, and do... I would go out and I'd ride in the rain and make sure my, my rain gear was was good. And I'd do What kind of mileage were you shooting for in the training? I was only doing a couple hundred miles a week. Oh. Um, Mike. And, it, and then your goal was like, I mean, your average has to be like 150 a day when you're crossing America. Yeah, my average needed to be up a little bit higher. All depends on how many days you want to to do it in I was shooting I was overly optimistic on 21 days I was probably a little more realistic on 25 26 days and I think I was probably on schedule to do 28 days <laughs> um, but it all but it all depends um, on how you do it 
I would I would change some things that I did. Like I would get my bivy system dialed in even better and lighter so that I wouldn't have to hotel or motel, you should say, every night, especially getting close to Rocky Mountain um, or Yellowstone National Park. There's just Be- no options. Well, no, there's options, but I, you know, between a couple of hotels and two nights, I spent close to 600 bucks uh, on yeah. rooms just to get in there at 10 or 11 o'clock at night and leave at 4 or 5 in the morning. So you'd want to, like, bivy sack? Sleep <laughs> on the side of the road? at the most dangerous <laughs> portion of the race, I would <laughs> I would then bivy. You could be killed by a car or a bear. Or a bear. That was the one thing. And then, that was... how do you even relax? I mean, I did cycle Oregon, you know, a couple times and whatever, doing a 500-mile week is tough but mm-hmm. um at one point you know we were doing a century each day in the middle at one like really long one and like i i wimped out bailed from my tent and got a hotel in town because we were in a little town yeah well i, I and always, i slept like the dead it was great yeah like, well that was mattress. the thing i would you know i would only bivy if bivying having a good bivying setup gives you a better option not to motel up if but it adds four or five pounds yeah and my, my thing, it wasn't so much the weight. I would gone, I had a light bag that was going to get me down to freezing temperatures. That was fine. Um, but I wrapped it in one of those SOL Mylar bags rather than just the sheet. And, and when I'd practice it, it was okay. But when I used it, the temperature got low enough that you trap all the condensation inside that bag from your body heat. Uh. And so I would wake up, even though I was warm, my stuff would be wet. Mm-hmm. And now it's, you know, you're, you're, you're really, you're rolling out before dawn and it's dark and now you've got wet stuff in your, in your bag. And my whole setup, I mean, loaded bike with all my bags, without the water, was 40 pounds, including the bike weight. Right. So like so, 20, about 20 pounds-ish of yeah, gear? Yeah. Yeah. I think my, I think my light speed is And then like you just 19, use like a pounds. frame bag and a big ass seat bag? Or I didn't have a big ass seat bag. I, I had front bags and then a... a like a rack? No, I... Or did, just... I, I basically I used my arrow bars like a shower or a laundry curtain, uh, <laughs> and hung a hung a double ended uh, dry bag. Oh, okay. So double open either side, mm-hmm. and that was any of my any basically anything soft went in that bag. Any loft, soft and light stuff went up front. No. So wait, on the training, what was the most you did in a week leading up to it? Um, I might have done a two hundred and fifty mile week. Oh, that's it. That's it. No, and then, Mike Hall is the guy that kind of developed us, and he's, mm-hmm. he got hit and killed in the India Pacific wheel race. But he was like, do a 50, 80 mile, and a 30 miler three days in a row, um, and that'll help your body get accustomed to it. Because you can't, I mean, you can't really practice doing these back to back to back to back centuries, even though some people do. You um, could ride to the coast and back. Right. I don't know. No, I was thinking, I would like. I'd ride to Mount Angel and get a sausage and ride back, you know, basically lunch destination return. And, uh, and I, I did a couple loops, you know, uh, you know, up over Meadow Lake to down into Hebo and Beaver and then, uh, and then around. That's a nice 120 mile ride, you know, door to door from McMinnville. That's super. I'd like to tell people like thinking about cycle Oregon or major cycle touring that like, you know, once you can get up to 50 or a hundred miles, you can do anything. Um, yeah, men- mentally people seem to have this uh, hurdle of 100 miles. But the funny thing happens, when you, you go over 100 miles and you usually feel pretty good, and then you're going to start feeling like crap about 100, uh, at least I will, um, 
really slow, slogged out at about 115 to 125 miles, just boof, hitting the wall, drinking all your but you're Everything. at eight or ten hours or but something. But you hit a you hit get over that 125, 135 miles, you get a second wind, hmm. and then you if you can hit if you get to that 135, totally feasible to add it up to 180. Hmm. But you but you will have that rough rough time in the gutter, let's say, and everyone's going to be a little different. But somewhere between 110 and 130 miles is difficult. Yeah, I feel like uh, maybe. Around 90, 85, 90 miles, I feel like. Okay, this has been enough of a day. <laughs> I'm starting to get tired. But yeah, if it goes... I've ridden maybe 120 to the most I've ever done in a day. But if I can get past 85, then yeah, it can yeah. keep going. It's okay. Right, right. And but that's people... when it starts starts to not be fun anymore. You're just like, okay, right. everything hurts a little. And if We've been you... out here for seven hours or something. Like... Right, and I find when you start to get any of the aches, it's because you need more fuel. Yeah, it's true. And usually if you stop and eat and drink, you know, I, I practice a gas station diet. I literally... I was going to say, <laughs> I have a friend who had a blog that was called like Little Debbie Adventures. Those are delicious. Because he said it was the most calories for the least amount of money in the smallest package. Uh, so Little Debbie crappy cakes that are dollar crappy two. crappy cakes, yeah. They're so like can... 300 calories and you would just pound... You you, just for less station. than $5, you can get close to 10,000 calories. <laughs> Yeah, he was obsessed with little Debbie's. Right. I, uh, I like the Pop-Tarts because they, oh, nice. they come in a serving size. That doesn't matter if you mush them all up. And, uh, and the, garbage, the garbage packs out easily yeah. and it's not very bulky. Yeah, I was going to say. What, it's like 200 calories each. It's terrific. What, yeah, what crappy food did you have to eat all the time? Well, I would practice going to the Dairy Queen <laughs> and getting a double cheeseburger oh, and then God. doing the rest of like the old uh, Amity ride. God. Yeah, did you ever have any stomach issues at all? No, I got days? Very lucky. That's amazing. I got very lucky. I didn't have any... I had dropped a chain once. Um, no mechanicals. Oh, yeah. How how many flats? Zero flats. Zero flats. And Zero. you had the really crazy setup of going with tubular tires, which yeah, have I, to be glued I, on by hand. Yeah, I ride, to, I ride on Does so anybody ups. else do that? I don't think that... the entire ride? No. I didn't think... No. It's... it's I mean, uh, you probably want to go tubeless if you want to be high tech. Well, if, you want to, well, if you're going to be tubeless, then why wouldn't you be tubular? Yeah. Well, I mean, but yeah. for me, I only I got three sets thing. of wheels, and they're all sew ups. So <laughs> I can't believe zero, zero. Oh, I use Stan's latex. I don't oh, know why true. anybody doesn't have latex in their tire. Exactly. Everybody's like, oh, I've had five flats today. I was like, you running latex? They're like, no. Like, okay. <laughs> and what happens is, if you're going to run latex, and you have to buy um, inner tubes, mm-hmm. or even if you're on sew ups, you have to have valves with the removable core, right? And then you can get the the latex in there. Yeah. But I, you know, they say put in 30 mil. I probably put in 50, 60 mil just to be a little more exercise. Or I can, they say I get two flats maybe. So you dropped the chain once. I dropped the chain. 1,800 miles. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Just like a bad shift on a hill. Just a, yeah. Just a, just. <laughs> and you could just shift back at. Right. Know? And I did have a chain catcher, which is probably why that was the only one. And when I looked down at it, my chain catcher was a little open. Yeah. And so that was probably, I'd probably just put my foot on it or something at a stop. So what was the... Did you leave from here or did you have to go to the coast? I rode to Astoria. Mm-hmm. So the, the race started on Saturday the 2nd. Is it a mass start or is it everyone yeah, at their own Yeah, it's a mass pace? start. There's 116 of us. And you were using like the adventure cycling maps? I used like, the adventure cycling maps. These aren't great. No. They're okay They're okay. Maps. I would have totally been lost if it wasn't for the mass start. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, so going, going we could have used a GPS computer, I guess. Well, going forward with this, because I'm going to do some more of these, because I, 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 I thought it was great. Um, I'm going to get a dyno hub so I can produce my own electricity. electricity right. Because the people that had the electricity with good lighting set up, awesome nighttime riding. I put on three lights up front that were just AA battery. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, that Portland that Spaceship 3, I think, is what it's called. Hmm. Either way, um, LED lights, really, I mean, perfectly fine. And But I would switch over to being able to generate all my own power, and I would get a Garmin unit to and just download, ride with GPS onto it. Right. So I would totally, going forward, that's something that's going to happen, which allows me to then build another front wheel, which I haven't built a wheel in decades but I've built hundreds of wheels. So I guess gonna... you could have the dyno go into a battery that you're going to use later on for the high output lighting. Yeah. Yeah. I have or you a... can run it all day. I mean, I have good. Um... I don't think you. Well, I've got to look into it. I don't think you really store any of the energy. You just don't utilize it. Right. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking the trickle of a dyno hub. It's not a lot of voltage or power or whatever amperage, whatever the hell. No. Like, I think it's but six you can or seven watts. But you can trickle charge to a you know like a big meaty battery or something. Yeah. And I mean, then, I carried a a big spare battery block. Right. That I used a couple times camping just to make sure. But mainly, my phone was in airplane mode. Um, Most of the time, I found. Um, well, I mean, on bike touring. Uh, you can get something like the size of a trapper keeper that's like three solar panels that build that, like maybe yeah. three sheets of paper. And you set that out in broad sunlight for like two hours and you can charge a 20,000 milliamp hour battery like a brick. Right. You I could, was amazed. You could you could do that. But you usually when you're stopped, it's dark. Right. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> you're riding like 16 hours a day or something. Right. But I think a lot of people in Kansas, because it was so hot, um, they did switch to night riding, day sleeping mm. is what I heard. But, so yeah, so you started in Oregon. You but got, I didn't make it that. You far, got so. to like halfway through Colorado or something. I, yeah, I made it to Granby. I knew well. I was doing most. Did of, you have to quit in a town? Like, how do you even get home? Do you well, have to quit in a town with a Greyhound bus? I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, uh-huh. and so I still had friends in the that, li- that lived on the Front Range. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that night, so I quit on Friday, and I think it was Friday the fifteenth, and mm-hmm. I knew. How far are you from Denver's airport? It was, oh, I was like not even two hours away from, from oh. Denver. Oh, okay. So I knew I knew going on, I talked to my wife the night before, I was like, this is probably it, because all of the descents I did coming out of Yellowstone, um, pretty much any descent I did was full blast, no brakes, <laughs> uh, because I just didn't have that much strength left. I didn't even put my hands near the brakes. If the, if the turn on the highway said it was a 40 mile an hour turn... I just checked to see if anybody was on the road, and if they weren't, I was just, I just took the lane. Um, and I knew I'd been over Hoosier Pass before, and I, and I was going to hit that on a Saturday, so it was going to be a lot of tourists. It's a fairly turny road, and you're going to drop down from 11,000 feet down to you know six 7,000 feet, so you've got a sizable altitude drop with turns and traffic and an inability to slow the bike down. So I, I told my wife I wouldn't be stupid. And so that morning I texted some of my buddies and I was like, hey, I'm thinking about scratching. Um, can you pick me up in Granby? And then they said, yes. I go, and then I call them up and then we talk for a little bit. And now we have a plan. And it was also the last day of school. I have a good friend um, who was teaching at uh, Sue Buell. 
and part of her kids geography lessons was watching the, the oh, yeah, track yeah. leaders follow Todd yeah. and then they were talking about you know historical things and the geography and what though. happened and I was like oh I have to make it until at least the last day of school so what if you were thinking about the whole ride what it feel like I mean is Oregon mostly flat you had to go over bend That's Oregon was climb. surprisingly climbing really yeah. like the way I guess you had to go up to bend is it 4,000 yeah something like yeah, that yeah going up McKenzie Pass was but then Idaho's was, a nightmare <laughs> Idaho's steep too. There's and, a lot. Did of you steep. go over the Continental Divide and then it was yeah, downtime. a few different. Co- yeah, it was pretty much up and down all the all the time. Do you go up and? I mean, seems like the the yeah, pass we is kind of, right. For, we went we went from Astoria down towards Eugene mm-hmm. over Mackenzie Pass to uh-huh. uh, like Bend Redmond, mm-hmm. well Redmond, and then Prineville and towards John Day mm-hmm. up Baker City. Um, Near Sake River, the, right, near the right. dam, the, uh, crossover oh, at the dam. Yeah, I've done that. Um, towards Riggins, and then up over Lolo Pass into Montana. Drop through Montana. That was a lot of wind in Montana. More <laughs> wind in Wyoming, huh. which came, which was not bad because I'd I'd set myself headwinds. Up. Headwinds. Because you're going west, uh, east, <laughs> which is with the wind normally. It's. In the mountains, the winds can come in That's any true. direction, and that was that was a tough day getting into Dillon because I had a headwind dropping going south, cross over a little mountain range. Now you're heading north, and you get over this mountain range, and you're thinking, "Oh, great! Now I'm going to have a tailwind." No, it's it's blowing from the north on <laughs> that side what of the was range. Your, what was your lowest mileage day? The last day, it was seventy two miles. And what was the longest? Buck eighty something. Huh. And then. Uh... I mean, how do you? Tr- the thing I couldn't believe when I had to like cross mountain passes in Cycle Oregon was like there was no way to train for a six-hour climb. <laughs> like, there's nothing around no, there's, here that comes close. No, we don't have Colorado-sized no. elevation changes here. No, I would do more speed work. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do. Oh more yeah, what was your average speed usually? Not as good. I was hoping. Were you to, shooting for twenty or over twenty? No, I was shooting for fifteen, sixteen. Oh, okay. And I think my overall trip. It's hard to say because they they break it down in stops and stuff, but I think it was more like eleven or twelve miles an hour. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I did the whole Oregon coast. It comes out at ten or twelve miles yeah. an hour when you're loaded up with like fifty pounds. Right, and, it, and like coming out of Yellowstone, um, I was pretty much with the, all the little up and downs. I think I was going eight miles an hour. Hmm. Because um, you you. Tr- so how many hours try- a day? It is dawn to as long yeah, as you can stand I, it. I pretty 10 much PM? fourteen to eighteen hours a day in the saddle. It's like six to. Ten? Yeah, wow. just before dawn. Unless it was like in Yellowstone, it was super cold. Mm-hmm. So I waited till it warmed up to thirty six degrees before I went out. How often did you see other riders? Like there was a group of there's a half a dozen of us. Are you allowed to draft? No drafting. Okay. So we'd ride side by side, which is not my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it would be on a closed road. Right. But just with everybody out there, I don't. So you did it's, see it's people occasionally. You'd, you'd see people. You basically the social time was at a gas station, and uh, you know refuel, bathroom break. Well, you guys are always on roads, so there probably are towns and stuff. Yeah, right? most of the time you don't have to go more than seventy miles. Um, there was some some places where I think it was eighty miles without any any water re- ability. Wow. To so you just you know. So you run two bottles, three bottles. I ran three bottles all the time, and then with the extra bags and jerseys, I would buy three or four extra beverages too. And then. Uh, do you? Uh, 
always eating small, like just constantly small things? Or do you no, ever stop trying for to, a burger? Trying to, yeah, stopping for big meals. Stopping, one of the worst parts was I like... I can't believe your digestive system. Yeah, no, I was lucky. Riggins was the, probably the worst day because I had started the morning... No, I'd come in, because a lot of these towns shut at like 9 or 10. Yeah. There's only a few hundred people that live in them. So I roll into Riggins, Idaho, and I get in. First motel, no room. Second motel, no one answers the door. Third motel, okay, they have a room. I'm like, okay, where are these stores at? And now it's like 10.30, and everything's closed. So I've missed dinner. Um, luckily, they had a cup of noodles. Oh, and then the next morning... I'm like, I'm just going to wake up and and hit it hard. So I start riding at like 4.30. So there's no breakfast. So that was a tough day because no dinner, no breakfast. I usually carry maybe two, 3,000 calories worth of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, lar bars, what have you. And there's a big difference between finishing your day and eating those and finishing your day sitting down and someone bringing you a hot meal. Yeah. That's, I mean, budgeting so you have a hot meal, even if it means... And now you're in a town and it's 8.30, eat that big meal, and now go ride some more. Which comes back to my point of have that bivy system and don't worry about, you know, stealth camping somewhere. Just yeah. to keep moving. Because, you know, giving, giving away daylight is never good. You know, I'd, I'd rather ride in the daylight and then figure out stuff at night. Um, so if you're going to do it in the future, do you think, like, what weight would you shoot for for your gear? I think my gear, I think that 40-pound bike is fine. I ran a 38.54 up, up front for my big chain ring and little chain ring. I'm going to drop that down to a 34, maybe a 52. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not worrying so much about, because some people... Yeah, you don't need high-end power. You don't need high-end power, Spare. but I, you know, my cadence is probably 85 RPMs. Probably, that's what I kind mm-hmm. of, I feel like that's what I plot along at. So I'm going to pick up some stuff in the next little bit and tinker. Because I want to do the Steens Mazama next year. So it's in it's 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 Oregon. 1,000 miles, leaves in Portland, goes down towards... It uh, doesn't lap. Yeah, it's a big loop. Because like, 350 way aside, so yeah. it seems like... It's, yeah, it's a big loop. Um, goes down, does a bunch of climbing... It's like maybe 100, 200 miles east of Klamath Falls and then back up towards Eugene and then up, kind of like Eugene Corvallis. Wow. And that's in July they do that. And then there's Transit Way. In a week, Way. maybe? Yeah, it's a week. Or is it all self-supported as that's long all, as you want all, to? All I want to do are okay. self-supported things. And, yeah, what's the, uh, what are the rules on self-supported? Like, there's, no one's allowed to touch your bike? Is that whole thing on in effect? Yeah, well, A, don't complain about the rules. Rule number one. Because I know some of those mountain bike things, like like if a bike mechanic ever touches your bike, you're out. Yeah, always, I don't, this is not that. This isn't competitive. Well, I think if you're in the top ten, maybe that's that's something different, and the rules are, you know, the rules are the rules have to be pretty adhered to. Like me being a wrench or having been a wrench, if someone's broken at the side of the road and I want to fix them and I can, mm-hmm. that's totally fair. What's not fair is if they call somebody up from a shop and they. Do a mobile service. Yeah. Now you can. What about food drops? I guess food drops are supposed to be bad. Water drops okay. supposed to be bad. There are trail angels. Someone who has set right. up a lemonade stand in their yard or yeah. something. Here's a cookie. Keep going. Yeah. Those are great. 
I had, you know, and some people, there's a lot of people that dot watch. Like, coming oh. up, like, the transcontinental is coming up, I think it starts today or tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's a cool point to point. I'd like to put that on the calendar later. Because that starts, it's in Europe and ends in Turkey or Greece. And it's like a rally. So there's, like, four checkpoints. Get to the checkpoints any way you want. Wow. And then get to the end. Transatlantic ways in Ireland. I want to do that. That's going to be like a, a headwind and headwind and rain event oh, from, yeah. from hell. It's going to be beautiful. How many miles? It's like fifteen hundred miles. Yeah. So I, I think for me, a thousand miles, fifteen hundred miles are good. Like I told week. my wife earlier that I probably wouldn't do the Trans Am again, but then yesterday morning I told her <laughs> that uh, um, this probably could occur. <laughs> but you'd like. Uh, I would budget a month, I guess. Yeah, I would budget. Most. I would budget a month. Um, it would be maybe twenty twenty one would be the first time I would ever even remotely think of doing that. Yeah. Okay. But it kind of it hadn't felt like unfinished business, but now it's starting to feel like unfinished business. It's gonna hang over you for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. So we got to get that out of the way. <laughs> so, uh, like, what? Let me see. I usually like to end with like advice you could give. <laughs> people wanting to get into something but i mean riding across america in a couple weeks is madness <laughs> like there's no yeah i will i i would say a I mean, don't get know. get warm breathable rain gear b and this i tell this to everybody get booty covers for your shoes waterproof booty covers and wear cashmere socks hmm, cashmere cashmere socks better than wool socks because they're thinner but all the same insulating properties. Hmm. I think I use merino wool, but yeah, I should. Where do you spend buy? the money? Where do you buy? I buy them online. I spend like 10, 15 bucks for a pair of socks. Who makes like good cashmere socks? Yeah, they're Chinese. The Mongol. <laughs> Actually, they're Mongolians. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for uh, taking all the time today. Yeah. Thank um, you. Thanks for uh, talking, Todd. Appreciate it. Cool. Samaritan by The Long Winters on the album Putting the Days to Bed, and that's courtesy of Barsuit Records and John Roderick. This show is sponsored by Fireside.fm, uh, the best and easiest podcast host I've ever used. If you host a podcast, definitely check it out at Fireside.fm. Thanks.